1 Samuel chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me as we continue our study in 1 Samuel, and I hope uh, you still believe that God is able to do miracles, right? Because uh, I'm trusting the Lord for a potential miracle to cover chapter 4, 5, and 6 tonight. And, and, I, and I know that would be quite miraculous, uh, but... Uh, Given what the chapters contain, uh, we'll see what the Lord allows us to do, but it would kind of be good to take them as a unit. If you read ahead, you know, chapters 4, 5, and 6, the next three chapters, uh, really seem to have kind of a focal point on the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. In fact, in these three chapters, uh, over 30-some times, I think it's like 35, 36 times, uh, there are references to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And, of course, we remember what the Ark uh, was. The Ark was, remember, the most important furnishing in the tabernacle worship system. Uh, it was that exclusive piece of furniture God created and designed that was the only piece of furniture back in the rear portion of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Uh, and, and that one piece of furniture back there, the Ark of the Covenant, remember, was the place where God would manifest his presence, the, the glory of God, the actual Shekinah glory or presence of God himself there would be manifested. Remember on top of the Ark was what was referred to as the mercy seat uh, where there were two uh, angelic beings. And there at the top of the Ark on the mercy seat, if you remember, one time a year, the high priest would go in with the blood of an innocent substitute and would apply the blood there to make atonement for the sins of the nation, for the people as a whole. And again, keep in mind where this ark was and because it was where God manifested his presence, it was sort of symbolic of the, the throne of God and the presence of God. Because of that, only one man and only one time a year was allowed to actually have access into the presence of the Holy of Holies and where the ark was uh, because of this incredible holiness that was represented. So the, the ark in some ways was a symbol of God's presence to the people, of God's throne where he manifested himself on the earth, his presence among his people, where he would speak at times to the people of God. And these chapters deal a great amount now with the ark of God itself. So let's pick up here in chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> particularly actually halfway through the first verse because the first part of uh, verse 1 we discussed with our last chapter, but it begins almost a new paragraph saying, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer and the Philistines, it says, encamped in Aphek. Now become very familiar with the term the Philistines. They've already showed up before on other occasions but remember the Philistines will now become sort of the predominant enemy of Israel they'll become the perennial uh, enemies of God's people on a repeated basis throughout the time of Saul and even David as well and uh, many years ahead at this point and the Philistines were basically a sea people and we know historically they basically migrated south they were people originally from up in the northern area uh, of around the Asia Minor area in the shore area and it seems that they were forced or sort of pushed southward and as they came southward and migrated to the south into the area of Israel they then settled in on the southern 
area of Israel along the Mediterranean coastline there and they established sort of a confederation of, of five city-states kind of with capitals we'll see them you know Gaza is one of them Ashdod Ashkelon Gath uh, these different territories and sort of five city-states or capitals kind of came together as a confederation and made up the Philistine people and initially they were somewhat passive but like all people, then they began to get greedy and aggressive and wanting more land, nothing new under the sun, and territory. And so because of that, there began to be conflict uh, with the people of God, the Jews, because they had kind of settled into their land that God had given them as a covenant people. And here we see, it seems, one of those times of aggression mentioned here in our verses. It says, verse 2, and then the Philistines put themselves, notice, in battle array against Israel. So the, the Philistines are now the aggressors. They give an indication that they're about to attack in some way. They align themselves. Israel now lines up against them to enter into conflict, to defend their land. And it says there in verse 2 that when they joined in battle, it says Israel, notice, didn't fare too well. They joined in battle. Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed, it tells us, about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So that's a pretty hefty defeat. Uh, they're routed pretty well. It tells us that they suffered not just casualties as the result of their loss in battle militarily, but it actually says 4,000 men. Now, that's a lot of men. That's a lot of soldiers, a lot of death in one battle. And as the result of being defeated... God's people then, it says in verse 3, when the people had come into the camp after this great defeat they suffered from the Philistines, the elders of Israel said, questioning, verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So uh, they begin to ask a question. We've suffered tremendous defeat and notice that they connect their defeat to the Lord. Uh, now, whether this is them kind of genuinely trying to process why they were defeated or whether they're kind of casting the blame on God, and sometimes people do that as well, they, they uh, get out of alignment with God and, and out of dependence upon God. They're not walking in the will of the Lord. And then when a person does that, they go out, they begin to make wrong choices and poor decisions. And then just the consequential effects of that result in defeat and loss and problems in their life. And you've seen perhaps maybe in your own life on occasion, you've been guilty of it. Uh, I certainly have sat with people before who will make all kinds of poor choices and then they turn around and, and why did God let this happen and why did God let this take place and all of a sudden now the defeats and the difficulties and the problems they want to blame shift and push those things over toward God as if somehow the, the fault is on God's end that he would allow them to suffer the consequences many times which were really just their own poor choices or their rebellious actions for a season of time of not obeying the Lord and again for God's people, Deuteronomy chapter 8, just one of the places, Deuteronomy 28, God was very clear to the people of Israel. Remember, we saw this as we studied through these prior books of the Old Testament. God told them, if you obey me and you honor my word and you follow my ways, then God told them, I will give you strength and victory. And God said his blessings would be upon his people. And he said, you know, one of you will put a hundred to flight and a hundred of you will put a thousand or 10,000 to flight. And God said, even against all odds, you'll be victorious and strong. But God said in the same way, if you don't obey my word, 
And if you cast my word behind your back and you disregard my ways and, and my will, then God said, I'll make you vulnerable and weak. And he said, no matter how strong you may be, I'll allow you to suffer defeat and you'll be weakened. And God, in a sense, pulls back his hand of preservation and favor from his people. And, and interestingly enough to see that one of the ways that God indicates his favor being retracted from his people is to allow them to suffer defeat militarily. And here, this is what happens. They're now suffering defeat and they realize the connection. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, they should have clearly known why the Lord allowed them to be defeated uh, the Lord didn't defeat them. He allowed them to be defeated because of their own consequences of their poor decisions. They shouldn't be blaming God for this. They should have understood they were at fault for it. So look what they do. They, they think, well, we, we need to come up with a solution. And again, keep in mind, it's a time when people are living out of God's will. It's a dark time morally and spiritually. We know this is the same time historically around the time of the judges. So when people are in sin, when they're not living in right relationship with God, they don't process decisions correctly. And their reasoning becomes very fractured and, and they have poor ideas about how to resolve situations. And instead of just confessing their sin and repenting, Instead, they try and find other fixes and solutions for their problems. Particularly, they're going to kind of try and use God like a genie in the bottle now. And they want to kind of use God in a superstitious way we take note of as we go on notice. It says, verse 3, here's their suggestion because of suffering defeat militarily. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. Notice that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So notice what they're saying. They're not saying we need to seek the Lord so that when his presence goes with us into battle, he will save us and protect us and give us strength. Instead, they say, let us get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which was a symbol of the presence of God, but it was one of the furnishings among the temple. And they're interested in the, the Ark of the Lord, but not the Lord of the ark if you would and they basically at this point you can tell are kind of looking at the ark of the covenant of the lord kind of almost like an like an amulet or, or an icon or we might say like a, like a lucky charm a lucky rabbit's foot and they're thinking well if we can just bring the ark into battle well th then that'll that'll make god have to bless us and it's almost like we can kind of you know with god in a box just work our little religious formula and if we just bring the ark well that will be the key then then that will be success and, and we'll do well and somehow that will resolve our issues and basically what they're wanting to do here is relate honestly to god in just rather a very superstitious mindset uh, they're thinking, oh, we can continue in our sin. We don't have to confess or repent or change our ways. All we need to do is just do some religious things. And somehow that'll tip the scales and it'll kind of balance things out. And kind of in a very superstitious mindset, they think, well, if we just attach ourselves to some superstitious things religiously that they have a mindset towards that somehow that was going to make things go better for them. And now again, you can tell there, you know, they're, they're trusting in it and they're not relying upon God himself. And, and we may look at that and think, well, Boy, obviously their reasoning is a little bit off there. They have a, a wrong perspective. But the truth of the matter is people can be guilty of doing the exact same type of thing today. 
There are times when people, uh, maybe it's not the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, but again, the idea there is they're trying to use the things of God or spiritual things as a way to compensate for their own disobedience and as a way of kind of wanting to continue in their sin and error, but balancing out by, by utilizing some of the things of God rather than turning to God himself in a, in a personal and a genuine way. And people can do that today. There are people today who live in willful disobedience to God, maybe in some lifestyle or some sinful practice, and their mindset is, but it's okay because I go to church every Sunday. Or, or, or it's okay. I mean, yes, I'm in a relationship with someone I should not be in a relationship with or I'm having you know, sex outside of marriage with someone, but, but I'm still reading my Bible and I'm still praying every day. And, and this same mindset, which again is a very honestly deceived and, and, and superstitious mindset that is somehow like God or the things of God can be just like a, a lucky charm and we can just use God in this superstitious manner to balance things out. And, and we see people doing much of the same foolishness in their lifestyles today. And here the people think somehow this is going to just make things go better. Well, uh, this isn't going to work and God's going to cause them to recognize this. Verse 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Now remember, these two were reprobates. Remember, they're sleeping with women in the temple, the Bible told us. They're stealing from the people of God. I mean, they are sinful, corrupt ministers in the house of the Lord. And these are the two guys who are transporting the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out to the battlefield. As if somehow this is going to be a good idea. Well, hey, well, that sounds like a good idea. And we'll, So they come out, it says, they were with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you're, you're starting to take notice here already, the repetitious language that the Holy Spirit keeps referring to it as the Ark, but then it keeps saying of the Covenant of the Lord. See, this is the problem. The people had forgotten everything after the word Ark. The Covenant of the Lord. They, weren't, they were forgetting that the, the ark represented the presence of God and it represented a covenant between God and his people, a right relationship with God and his people. That is, they were in right relationship with God as they honored his covenant, God would honor his covenant to them. Remember what God said back in chapter two uh, at that time when the, the man of God came and gave a prophetic word, God said, those who honor me... I will honor. Well, the same goes the other way. If you dishonor God, then God's not going to honor what you're doing, no matter whether you bring along the church building, your Bible, and seven other Christians. And here, they bring along the priestly individuals who are basically corrupt themselves, and they've totally forgotten the whole purpose of what this is. So again, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, where notice God dwells between the cherubim. It was, that's what made the difference. The presence of God, it wasn't the box itself or a religious relic. Uh, it was God's presence was what the people had completely began to disregard. Well, verse 5 says, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, and they're all excited thinking, hey, this is finally going to work. Because no doubt they're thinking, remember when we crossed the Jordan? That's right. 
when we crossed the Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they utilized it and a miracle happened. And remember the other battles? They would bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and God would give victory. So they're just thinking, well, hey, if we do this, God has to bless us. It's as almost as if we can manipulate the hand of God. Yes, we can disregard God, but if we get the Ark out, if we pull out the lucky charm, he's got to bless us. If we do our religious duties, he's got to bless us. We can live in corruption, but hey, if I say a few of these and a few of those and I do one of these and I, you know, I, I attend church a few times, God's got to bless me. He just has to. And it's a very deceived, superstitious mindset. So they now get greatly excited as the ark comes into the camp militarily. It says, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, that's a pretty loud praise meeting. And again, certainly probably some hyperbole in the language there, but notice what's happening. They're getting all hyped up with a bunch of enthusiasm. There's hyper-emotionalism going on, but again, take notice as well. All this getting hyper-enthused and hyper-emotionalism, it's not going to do anything to bring about God's victory. And again, I think this is another very poor idea where sometimes people get the idea that if we can just get hyped up enough and loud enough and, and pumped out enough and, and almost like a spiritual pep rally, you know, if we can just really get ourselves in a strong frenzy and hyper enthusiastic and emotional that somehow that's going to, God's just going to come because we're going to beckon him to come because we're going to get supercharged in some spiritual pep rally. And the reality is, is listen, we can have a spiritual pep rally, but if the presence of God is not honored God's not going to show up God's not going to show up we can be quiet as a mouse and not say a word what God is looking for is the condition of a heart and so here are the people they're probably chanting and getting hyped they're shouting it says loudly as here comes the ark and they're thinking all right now this is all we need we're just going to march back in there and take them down well verse 6 is when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Somehow word got back to the Philistines. So the Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. Now they assumed that God had come into the camp, but the reality was that he hadn't, which goes to show you sometimes pagan people look at the things of God and they get a very wrong idea. And here are God's people acting in this way, getting all excited, and, and the, the unsaved world is looking and saying, wow, that's the presence of God. That's the moving of God. And God's going, no, that's not. That's human emotionalism. That's not the presence of God. Yeah, they may be shouting and jumping and doing all this and that, but God says that's just their human energy. It has nothing to do with my presence. Because <laughs> God's presence was not with the ark at this point, we're going to see. But they think that this is the, the manifestation of the presence of God. So they said, woe to us, verse 7, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. There was a, a sense of intimidation in the Philistines. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Notice they obviously have a very pagan mindset. They think that God is polytheistic or the Hebrews have multiple gods on their side. These are the gods, the same ones, they say, who struck the Egyptians with the plagues in the wilderness. Now, keep in mind, that was 500 years ago. You're talking about a 500-year-old testimony. When God works, 500 years later, people are talking about it. Pagan people. The Philistines are saying, 500 years ago, these same gods brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. Again, that was the power of God, but it was God himself, not multiple gods. 
So they are bolstered in their confidence. Now take notice, what God's people thought was going to work to their advantage, if we just bring the ark, then God's got to work, we're going to make it happen, if we just work the formula superstitiously, religiously, if we just work that formula, God's got to move. And the reality is it actually backfires and all it does is it emboldens the Philistines more and they whoop them like five times worse. And sometimes when we try and do in the flesh what really should be happening through seeking God and the power of prayer and waiting for his presence and his spirit, we can really make things twice as bad in our efforts sometimes spiritually because the Philistines, when they get nervous, they just become emboldened now as warriors. These were well-trained warriors. They said, be strong, verse 9. Conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become as servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Notice again, every man fled to his tent and there was a very great, the Bible says, a great slaughter. And there fell of Israel, now this time, 30,000 foot soldiers. So seven times more than the first time, 30,000 casualties and deaths as the result of this whether the ark was with them or not. And if that weren't bad enough, verse 11, this is more humiliating. Also, the ark of God, that most important symbolic thing of the presence of God where God moved in powerful ways among his people, the ark of God itself was now captured by the Philistines. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died, even as the prophecy said they would, they would both die the same day. And the men of Benjamin, or a man from Benjamin, excuse me, ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Again, these were symbols of mourning. You would rend your clothes. The idea is kind of like rending your heart. You were torn with great emotionalism. The dirt would indicate, the idea is like you had fallen prostrate on the ground. So these were symbolic ways of great grief and mourning. And when this runner came from the battle, again, keep in mind, they didn't have a cell phone. You couldn't text somebody, hey, here's what happened out in the battle line. You actually had a physical runner. So this guy comes running, perhaps miles from the battle line, back to give report. And it says, when he came, there was Eli, the, the priest, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He was uneasy, because he probably knew in his heart, this is foolishness. They should not be taking the Ark of God out there as some icon or amulet to try and use it in some superstitious way. But yet again, often this man knew it was right, but he never had the conviction to do anything about it. And so he passively just let his two sons who were reprobates take the Ark out there. And obviously it was troubling him, it says here. And when the man came into the city and told... All the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, verse 14, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. And Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who's come from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Notice verse 18 tells us, then it happened. Notice, not when he heard that his sons died. 
Because it's almost as if he knew prophetically that that was inevitable because God had told him that his two sons, because he didn't restrain their evil, were under the judgment of God. This wasn't what shocked him to the core, but it happened when he made mention of the ark of God because he knew this was the, 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 the critical element to the presence of God being among his people and manifesting himself in a living way. When he heard the ark of God, it says, had been captured, then Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was not only old, the Bible says, but very heavy. He was a large man. And he had judged Israel for 40 years. So again, so overwhelmed by the news, utterly shocked of the reality of what has just now happened. Did he have a stroke? Did he have some heart episode? He falls over. He breaks his neck. He now dies the same day as two sons do. And verse 19 says, Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, so one of the wives of the two sons, Hophni and Phineas. She was pregnant with child due to be delivered. Okay, now let me just make a quick side note here. Take notice of that. Phineas' wife was pregnant with a child due to be delivered. What was one of the things Phineas was guilty of? He was sleeping with women in the house of God. Why? He had a pregnant wife. You want to talk about a sicko? He's cheating on his pregnant wife. This is how detestable even the ministers of God had become in this time. She's now pregnant with his child. He's just died out in the battlefield as the judgment of God has come upon him. She now is due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were now dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. So this threw her into labor. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have borne a son. But she did not answer nor regard it. And she named the child, seems right before she died, saying his name shall be Ichabod, which translated means no glory. Or where is the glory is the idea of this poor kid's name. Imagine growing up. That must have been tough. Saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said... The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So this very tragic day, again, the idea here of the glory has departed from Israel, it's just another way of basically saying she was trying to say the God's presence has departed from us. The language there literally is departed is to go into exile. The idea is, is, is an indication that she's saying God ha has departed from his people. He's exiled himself from his people. He's moved away. He's taken his glory and his presence and his power and departed from his people. And this is causing her to be tremendously concerned because what hope do a people have if they don't have the presence of God? What, what sense of protection or help or strength? And again, if the ark of God has been taken away, that's another major problem because guess what? A holy God would not be able to be approached by his people unless the blood of the covenant once a year was applied to the mercy seat, guess where? On the ark. So now atonement can't even be made for sin. So how are the people of God to be able to approach God to seek him in any way? And so this is a tremendous concern. The glory of God 
has departed from his people. Now she says because the ark was taken away, the reality is it's the exact opposite. The reason the ark was taken away was God's glory had already departed. That's why the ark was taken away. Things fell apart because God's glory had already departed at this point in time. And boy, I tell you, we read those kind of things and I can't help but to shudder to say, I wonder if over some houses of God, if the word Ichabod doesn't fit perhaps well there's well, that the glory of God has departed. The religious activities are still going on. The routines of what would happen are still taking place. Again, I think of even how Jesus addressed some of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, right? And there were times where Jesus would speak about the things they were doing. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, we see Jesus there with the lukewarm uh, church that he says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. And he actually says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Well, that indicates something. If Jesus is standing at the door knocking, saying, if you open the door, I'll come in, that means they had shut Jesus out of the church. The Lord had departed. They were still operating as a church, doing all the things that the Laodicean church did, active, conducting service. But Jesus said, uh, could I come back in and actually be a part of the church? Would you allow my presence to be welcome among you again? Would you not make it about perhaps all the programs and this and that and social club and everything else and, and personality? Could I be a part of the church? Could it be about me again? Could, could my presence and my glory be a part of it? And he's outside the door knocking because in a sense his presence has had to be pushed out and departed in some ways, perhaps because of the things that were taking place there in the Laodicean church. So what an interesting thing if perhaps some churches would fit that label God help us that it would never be ours well chapter 5 now we're going to see that though God's people fail and falter God remains the same and his power is still strong and basically God's going to show the Philistines just because you defeated my people does not mean you've defeated me it's a unique chapter but we'll read through it it says the Philistines took the ark of God then and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod again one of the five cities that were sort of the city uh, capitals of their area Philistia they bring it to Ashdod and when the Philistines took the ark of God they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon now Dagon was believed to be one of the chief gods of the Philistines uh, if you look at pictures of Dagon he was basically like a male mermaid uh, with sort of a fish mermaid body on the bottom and a, a male at the top. And he was believed to be the, the god of uh, grain and nature and so forth, even the father of Baal, which would be pretty powerful because Baal's a pretty predominant pagan god we find in the Old Testament. So what they do, and again, this is their mindset, understand, culturally, they believe that battles were won and lost by the power and strength of the gods. So if a battle was lost in the valley, then they, well, okay, the god of the valley was stronger than the god of the hills. So uh, therefore, that's why that battle was won there. So they look at this as our god, Dagon, has defeated your god. So they bring the ark in to the temple of Dagon and they put it there kind of like a trophy. And the idea is kind of like, we stole your trophy, we whooped up on you, we're bringing it back to our house. And they put it there in the temple of their god, as sort of a mockery that their God is stronger. And when the people of Ashdod, verse 3, it says, arose early in the morning, look what God does. There was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon. This is what you do. If your God falls over, you stand him back up again, right? 
set him back up in his place again. So they come in in the morning, and here's Dagon, his, his statue has fallen face down in front of the ark of the Lord because the presence of God is you know, being manifested to try and reveal himself to the Philistines. And this is a tragic thing. You know you've got the wrong God when you have to pick it up and when you have to help it up and stand it back up rather than it taking care of you that you're taking care of it, well, they just kind of casually set it back up and then, oh, maybe something happened. There was a small earthquake and we missed it or something. So God wants to make sure he's very clear. He doesn't like when people miss the point. He wants to make sure we get it, right? Verse four, when they rose early the next morning, God said, apparently you didn't get that. There was Dagon fallen on his face again to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold and only Dagon's torso was left of it. And therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread any more on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So God says, okay, if you don't get the point, if need be, I will break Everything that is necessary until you understand what I'm trying to say. So God this time knocks over the statue of Dagon, breaks off his head. So now their God's head is decapitated. His hands are taken off, which indicates he has no power. He has no wisdom or ability in comparison to the one true and living God. And they superstitiously at this time are somewhat spooked by this as God's shown his power as the one true and living God. Uh, and they don't even touch the threshold, it says, to that day because of this superstitious concern of what's happened now as the temple of Dagon had their God fall over and be broken on the floor in front of Yahweh God. Verse 6, But the hand of the Lord, notice, was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now that term tumors there, God ravaged them and struck them with tumors, the Hebrew term literally speaks of swelling sores. There are commentators most lean towards, I'm just going to be very candid with you, to what's being described here is severe hemorrhoids. That's the bottom line. The Hebrew there literally speaks of swelling sores. Some say, well, it's a reference to the bubonic plague because you see rats involved in the diseases they carry from the fleas that are upon them and so forth. The indication here is some sort of boil. It's swelling tumors in the Hebrew. And that Hebrew term, more often than not, is a term used to what we would refer today as hemorrhoids. So if God wants to get your attention, boy, he knows just how to get your attention, doesn't he? The younger audience doesn't understand that. Myself and others gradually do. So he strikes them all with severe tumors or hemorrhoids. And when the men of Eshdod saw how this had happened, the ark of God of Israel, they said, must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? This isn't fun. And they answered, hey, let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. So look what they do. I mean, just people have never changed. They say, look, this is horrible. We need to get rid of this thing. This has caused all these problems and struck with these tumors and hemorrhoids. What do we do? Hey, we got five of these capital cities. Let's say, look, we don't want to take all the glory for the winnings ourselves. You keep the trophy over there with you for a while. So they send it over to Gath. 
So they send the ark over to Gath and verse 9 says, when they brought it to Gath, again, there was a very great destruction and God struck the men of that city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Verse 10, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron, to another one of the capitals. So it was the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, word was starting to get around now, they have brought the ark of God to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So again, notice the heavy hand of the Lord is now plaguing these people, these pagan people, judging them. God is trying to get their attention to reveal, look, I don't care if you defeated my people. I am who I am still. And my people may not be what they're supposed to be, but God is always going to continue to uphold his honor and his reputation. And so the heavy hand of God was upon these Philistine territories. And boy, I look at this scene and I think to myself, boy, you know, I, I, I never, ever want to force God's hand ever. I don't ever want God's hand to be against me in resistance. Keep in mind, this is just the hand of God just his hand and they're suffering in this way because the hand of God was against them and they are beginning to develop an incredible reverence and fear for the power of Yahweh God sad the pagan unbelievers had greater reverence for God and his presence than his own people did at this point in time so they're trying to resolve now what they do this is going on for about a seven month period this suffering because Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Well, verse 6 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So the Philistines called together their priests, their religious leaders and diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us. How shall we send it to its place? So they say, We need to send this thing back where it belongs to the people of Yahweh God. This should not be among us. We are not right with this God and this is not faring well for us. They realize that this needs to be returned. So they said, look at their, their suggestion. If you send away the ark of God back to Israel, don't send it empty, but by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Interesting. How did they know anything about a trespass offering? Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Notice very interesting. Even unbelieving people, unconverted pagan people, had a sense in their own conscience of the guilt of their lives. And what did they also reconcile? They reconciled, we need some form of atonement in order to be right with God again. They don't understand the ways of God. They don't have the law of God. They don't have the scriptures. They didn't have the prophets or the priests. But yet there was a general sense in their conscience. We are guilty before our God. We are guilty before this one true and living God. And we need to send back some form of trespass offering to make atonement. Because if atonement is not made, then our guilt cannot be removed. There's just an innate sense within them of this reality. Now, of course, their reasoning is very bizarre. Look at verse 4. They said... Well, what is the trespass offering that we should return to God? 
And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords. The Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors. Now again, if these indeed are hemorrhoids, by golly. And images of your rats that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel, perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. So they say, look, this is the trespass offering. Make images, five golden images of the tumors, five golden images of the rats that seem to be also a part of the plague that was taking place. Now, I have seen some pretty ugly jewelry, but that, by all means, probably has to rank up there. I don't care if it's solid gold or not. That would be some pretty awkward jewelry. Golden tumors, golden rats, they're preparing them now, making these images, saying, listen, we need to somehow, what they do understand correctly, verse 5, is give glory to God. If we give glory to God, perhaps he'll lighten his hand from our lives. Verse 6, why do you, they say, harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh had hardened their hearts when he did mighty signs, among, excuse me, things among them? Did he not let the people go that they might depart? Now, therefore, watch, they're going to contrive a plan. Here's how they're going to send the ark back. Watch what they do. They're, they want to make sure that this is actually something that is truly God. They're not 100% certain, so they want to kind of validate, is this just a coincidence that, that the ark came and these things happened, or was this really a divine intervention? So they're going to create a scenario that would rule out whether or not it was just a coincidence or truly a miraculous divine intervention of this one true God. So here's what they suggest, verse 7. Therefore, make a new cart, two milk cows, which have never been yoked. So they're animals that are not broken. They've never been yoked or used before. Hitch the cows to the cart. Take their calves home away from the mothers. Now, mothers would want to be with their young calves because there was milk that they needed to supply and the calves would yearn for that milk as well. So, what they're going to do is create a scenario to try and make something that happens that violates the natural instinct of these mother cows with their calves. So take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart, verse 8, put the articles of gold which are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side and then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it, that's the ark, if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh, that would be the closest Israelite town going back into the land of Israel which interesting was also a Levitical town one of the priests that he has done this great evil but if not then we shall know it is not his hand that struck us it just happened by chance so then the men did so they took the two milk cows hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumor. So again, they're creating a scenario where what would naturally happen is two animals that were never yoked before would be prone to rebel. Or at least they wouldn't work together well. They'd want to pull in opposite directions. Well, that wouldn't work. If they took their calves and they brought their children, the, the baby calves, back home, and the mothers would naturally be inclined by nature and instinct to go back and to seek out their young. They would hear them lowing and they would want to go back to them. And so what they're doing is saying, listen, let's create every possible reason why 
if God's not in control, these animals, they won't function together right. They've never been yoked before. They won't know how to pull a cart. They'll just go around in circles and they'll gravitate right back to their baby calves. Instead, if they don't do that and they just make a straight line and, and basically work together and go 10, 15 miles up to the area of Beth Shemesh, that's got to be God because that would be totally a violation of their natural instincts and inclination as animals and their capability well verse 12 notice what happens then the cows contrary to their natural instinct headed straight up the road to Beth Shemesh and they went along the highway lowing as they went meaning they were yearning for their young ones but yet they were ignoring that desire of their natural instinct and instead going back to Israel returning the ark and it says, as they went, they did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. So they violate their natural instinct. And basically, God was demonstrating that this was his hand. Because God is now doing a resolution of what his people have failed out. And God is now returning the ark back to his people, which is where it's supposed to go. And how's he doing it? By two cows. And these two cows are submitting to their creator and God is directing these two cows. Now, let me just say, maybe a poor application, but I have to say it. That really encourages me to realize you can stack the deck against God's will being done. And that's basically what the Philistines, they tried to stack the deck in every way to give multiple reasons why these cows would not march up to Beth Shemesh and bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the town of Israel that was the closest town of Beth Shemesh. They did every possible reason why it shouldn't work, and yet God still made it work. God still put his hand upon it, and God directed these cows and made them do things contrary to their natural human, or not human, <laughs> their natural animal instinct, and they obey their creator and they go back. Now, let me just say, what encouraged me about this reality is a lot of times I think we get too concerned we don't trust the Lord give God room to work and we feel like we need to go help God out to make things get to where we want to see them get to we want to put things back in order or get people back where they need to go or make sure things get back on track so we we would be those we wouldn't want to trust the cows we'd want to get behind them and push the cart and and and, and somebody woo them with a carrot in front of them. hey we come on please don't fail don't we, we, and, and sometimes we feel like we need to do things to bring about the plans and purposes of God. Listen, God is more than able. If he could work like that in two little cows' lives, he can work like that in your husband's life, your wife's life, your child's life, people who don't. He can work in people's lives. God can do his thing. God can bring things to pass. He doesn't, it doesn't matter how much the deck is stacked against it. God can still work and bring things to pass against all odds. It's a great encouragement in many ways to see. So they realize this is a miracle. This is certainly the direction of the Lord. And the lords of the Philistines went after those cows all the way. They followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh were out reaping their harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and they saw the ark and rejoice to see it. This would be an incredible experience because this is such a very important thing to them in their worship as they now see the ark coming back to them by itself on this cart 
with two cows just pulling it towards them. They were probably a little shocked by the golden tumors and rats. But So the cart came into the field, verse 14, and it stood there and there was a large stone. So they split the wood of the cart. They offered the cows as a burnt offering unto the Lord as the ark had come back. They were trying to show reverence to God. And the Levites, notice, again, this was a Levitical city. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord that was with it. The articles of gold put them on a large stone. The men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices that day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord one for each of the cities, Ashdod and Gaza and Ashkelon and Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden rats as well, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords. And it says there, they put the ark on a large stone of Abel, which they set the ark of the Lord, and that stone remains there in the day uh, in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and our chapter concludes by telling us rather sad events. It says, And then God, he, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And he struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able, this is the key, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Please come down and take it up with you. So the ark comes back, and as the ark comes back, these people, again, keep in mind, Levites, not just the people of God who knew the law of God, but these were the Levites, those who were to be studied in the law, the, the ministers of God's people, they do something that is a complete violation of the law of God. Numbers chapter 4 tells us very clearly that again, even when they would transport the tabernacle from place to place, they were to go in. The first act they were to do was to go in and they were to cover the ark of the Lord because of the glory and the presence of God as reverence towards his holiness. And then with poles, they would then carry it. So there was to be this incredible reverence towards God's holy presence and here, again, was it curiosity? What was it? It says the people, as a midst of their rejoicing, they look into the ark of the Lord. No explanation why. But because they clearly transgressed the will of God and they knew better, God holds them strongly accountable and there's a great slaughter that day. It says in our text here, 50,070 men. Now let me just say, without getting all into it, that there's debate among scholars, the Hebrew phase there's, kind of difficult to, to translate to the English. Some think that that's better translated that out of 50,000 in Beth Shemesh, that 70 died. And some think it would be better translated, not that 50,070 people died, but 50,000 out of that 50,000, 70 men died. Listen, either way, that's a lot of people died. And, and the point, quite frankly, is, is irrelevant. If you want to debate Hebrew semantics, you can work with the scholars. I'm not one of them. <laughs> the bottom line is there, what happened is the people did not show reverence toward the presence of God. They became too casual. The key is verse 20. They said, when they realized this had happened, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? There was a lack of reverence for God's presence 
And God held accountable even more those who knew him and knew better. He held them even more accountable than he did the people who did not know his will and his ways. God is not a God of partiality. And God here demonstrates his power and his holiness because God's people lacked reverence. And I think the strong reminder as we look at this scene is we really need to be careful as God's people that we don't get too chum chummy and casual with our holy God. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen, here's the glorious news. They die as the result of not being able to stand in the presence of the holiness of God, but yet the Bible tells us through Jesus, we not only can stand, we have direct access into the presence of the holiness of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you realize this? What they could not have access to the presence of God, you and I, the Bible says, we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And now we have direct access into the very presence of a holy, awesome, righteous, powerful God at any time if we come to him by faith through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says we now stand in grace. We're not under the law. We stand in grace. Thank goodness for the grace of God and the grace that's afforded to us through Jesus Christ that we can come to his throne of grace and have access into the presence of God. What an amazing thing has been afforded to us in our lives today. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these chapters and Lord, even as we turn our hearts towards you to to sing tonight, I, I pray even as Romans 5 declares, Lord, that we this very night as we think about these things and see these events in times of old would continue to have reverent hearts towards you, Lord, but at the same time we would rejoice that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we can hope in the glory of God through Jesus What a wonderful thing you've given to us, Lord. Nothing we have done. May we always be reverent and greatly appreciative as we draw near to you. Receive our worship now, Lord. You're certainly worthy of it. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.